Good morning. <clears throat> it's funny uh, listening to Carmen give announcements. You can tell she's from the Deep South because she described a 40-degree day in January in Pennsylvania as cold and rainy. I'm like, what? It's like springtime, man. It's amazing. Um, anyway, uh, welcome. If you're new with us, my name is Tim Deal. I'm one of the pastors here. It's great to have you with us. Uh, this, of course, was a clip. It was the epilogue from Ant-Man. Um, Ant-Man is definitely, if you're into the Marvel Cinematic Universe, this is one of my family's favorite versions. Like, there, there's lots of different reasons why we like lots of different ones, but this is just a fun one. Um, and here in the, the epilogue, which if, you, if you've watched the Marvel movies, you know every one. If you haven't figured this out yet, you need to pay attention to it. Every one has an epilogue at the end. So you got to stick through the credits because there's something coming that's going to tease another movie that's coming up down the pike, right? So in this one, you see uh, Hank Pym, who is played by Michael Douglas, who's the kind of original Ant-Man, who is taking his daughter down to his laboratory and reveals to her that all along, they've kind of, she she is going to be one of the heirs to the Ant-Man powers, this ability to become super tiny or super large and and to kind of, uh, to... uh, break the, the laws of, of physics, as it were, um, she's going to be one of the heirs to this power. They've, they have a suit for her. She will be the wasp. She's ready. It's time. It's, it's at, I know, if you can tell who's, who isn't into Marvel because they're like, the wasp, really? That's kind of lame. But anyway, <clears throat> well, we are continuing in a series we've been in for the last couple of weeks where we're looking at Paul's letter to the people, uh, to the Galatians that we find in the New Testament. Um, again, it's, the New Testament's actually a, a collection of a bunch of letters among a couple of other kinds of books. And many of these letters were written by Paul. And in one, in this letter to the Galatians, uh, Paul is particularly concerned with who constitutes, the, who gets into the family of God and, and who constitutes the family of God. What does it look like to be a part of God's family? So we're calling this free at last, and and we're looking at how Paul looks at this topic through the lens of the freedom that we have through Christ. So today we're going to look at Galatians 3, 29 through chapter 4, verse 7. Again, I encourage you, we're we're skipping over, there's a bunch of things we don't have time to look at on a Sunday morning. I encourage you to read along on your own at home. Uh, If you have a Bible, if you don't have one, we have extras in the back. I encourage you to grab one before you leave this morning, take it home with you. Um, and we'll have the scriptures up on the screen so you can read along now as I read as well. So again, we're, we're starting with chapter 3, verse 29. We're going to chapter 4, verse 7. <clears throat> Paul writes, And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs, and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. Think of it this way. If a father dies and leaves an inheritance for his young children, those children are not much better off than slaves until they grow up even though they actually own everything their father had. They have to obey their guardians until they reach whatever age their father set. And that's the way it was before Christ came. We were like children. We were slaves to the basic spiritual principles of this world. But when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. And because we are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. Now you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. And since you are his child, 
God has made you his heir. All right, so Paul's continuing to build on this argument that we've been kind of looking at each week, kind of adding another piece to, where he's talking about the fact that through Christ, we're included in God's family. That the marker of the, the member of the family of God is faith in Christ. That this is, that, that it's not an external, it's not a religious marker, marker it's not an ethnic marker. It's, it's this, the person of Jesus and those who have chosen to, to put their trust in him that constitutes God's family. And if you look at how Paul lays this out, and we've been talking about it over the past couple of weeks, there's a real corporate reality to this. There's a, there's a community that's being built here, a family. But there's also a real personal element to what Paul's getting at, too. It's not just something that happens collectively. There's something individual, something intensely personal about this whole thing. Again, Paul wrote, writes, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. Now you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. And since you are his child, God has made you his heir. So a, a, couple, of things, a couple of things about this that strike me as really personal. Number one, we get this idea that God has set up residence in us, in those of us who, who are following Christ. God has taken up residence, God's spirit. Right? There's, if you're familiar with, there's a, a theological term called the Trinity, this idea that God is one but exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And you see all of that kind of here. And Paul says the Spirit of God comes to live in our hearts. That's actually a really, really big deal. Scripture is really concerned with this question of where does God live. And when I say Scripture, I mean the whole Bible seems to be very concerned with the idea of, of where God lives, where God resides. And it begins in the very beginning. The, the first book of scripture is called Genesis. It means origins. It's, it talks about the beginning of all things. And in chapter 1, we get this seven-day creation story of God creating everything. And there's a, uh, an Old Testament scholar at Wheaton College, a guy named John Walton, is a fascinating take on this that increasingly more and more people who study this stuff who are biblical scholars think is, is right on. Walton writes this. I'm going to read it to you. He says, The cosmos is portrayed in the ancient world and in the Bible as a temple. And temples are designed to be micro-models of the cosmos. Temples are built in the ancient world for the gods to rest in, which does not refer to relaxing, but to enjoying and manta maintaining security, and order. With the mention of God's rest on day seven, we can see that Genesis 1 is also thinking about the cosmos as a temple. God is creating his dwelling place, putting people into it as his images, representatives, and taking up his place at the helm to maintain the order he has established. So, so Walton is looking at this seven-day creation narrative, and if you've ever read it, there's this really odd thing that happens on day seven. The writer says, and God rested. And what Walton is doing is he's looking at this and he's saying, that's really intentional. What the author is communicating in saying God rested is not God was really exhausted from six days of hard work. He's saying what God is doing is setting up the cosmos, the, the world as his temple, where he resides. This is where God lives. 
But if you're familiar with the story at all, what happens next is the people who were set up as the image bearers, the priests, those who would represent God, they reject God. They go, on it, they go out on their own. And at that point, God no longer resides with people. There's a separation there. The rest of the story of the scriptures is God's pursuit of people to set up residence with them. Now, humor me for a second. We're going to run through this. Broad strokes. So it begins with Abram, right? And we talked about this the last couple of weeks, if you were with us, how God comes to Abraham, this kind of random guy, and says, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to bless all the nations through the world, uh, of the world through you. And he kind of goes with Abraham, and he begins what becomes the people of Israel, the Jewish people, uh, through the lineage of, of Abraham. But the next place we kind of pick up this, the kind of one of the key themes in this story, is after the Exodus, when, when the people of Israel have been um, enslaved by the Egyptians for 400 years, and then they're released into the desert. One of their primary concerns, once they're starting to become a nation again, is where are we going to connect with God? Where is God going to reside? Because God needed a place to reside with the people in order for them to know that God was with them, that God was on their side, that they were going to be okay. And so they built a temple, but they called it a tabernacle because it was portable. It was like a really elaborate tent. And if you've ever tried to read through the the book of Exodus, there's about 10 chapters dedicated to what the tabernacle looks like. It's kind of arduous. Even for geeky people who really like to read this kind of stuff, you hit those things and you're just like, oh my goodness, how many cubits is that? I don't even care. But it just goes into great detail about how they built this tabernacle, why they built certain things, what it looked like. This was the place where God's presence would dwell with the people. So that they knew wherever they went, God was with them. You can even see in this illustration, there's this pillar of fire. It, kind of, it represented the presence of God that would come to be with them in the tabernacle. That was where God lived. Well, then fast forward to, to when they actually established a nation in Israel. And they built a physical temple. You can read about this in, in 1 Kings or 2 Chronicles. Uh, the king Solomon built this magnificent building. The the stories about it are are just over-the-top elaborate. This was the place where God would live with his people forever. That Israel was was the nation, that that they were the people of God, they were the family of God, and God would live with them forever in this amazing building, this temple. This is partly why it was so devastating when In around 586 B.C., about 400 years after the temple was built, the Babylonians came in and destroyed it and hauled some of the people away. I mean, obviously, the being hauled away, having the people exiled from their their home nation was devastating. But just as, if not more devastating, was the destruction of the temple, the place where God lived, the place that indicated God is with us, God is for us, it's going to be okay was now demolished. It wasn't there anymore. God was not with them. This is why we get some of the uh, books like Lamentations in the Old Testament, if you're familiar with that at all, some of the, the longings, the groanings, the things that we look at in the Old Testament where people are crying out and saying, God has abandoned us. It's, it, that's it. We're done. God's left the building because God 
not only had God left the building, the building had left. It was gone. But then when you get to books like, again, in the Old Testament, books like Nehemiah and Ezra, these are names of people who led a movement of the Israelites to go back to Israel after the exile and rebuild what was called the Second Temple. So a second temple was built up that Jewish society kind of grew around and flourished around. And and this is what we have during the time of Jesus. When you get into the New Testament and read the Gospels and they talk about the temple, this is, it's this second temple that ultimately ends up getting destroyed as well by the Romans. They understood where God lived, whether or not God was with them based on this building, this temple where God's spirit dwelled. And then came Jesus in the midst of that. And one of the really striking messages of Jesus, kind of the core striking message of Jesus, was that in Jesus, God was with us. Not in the temple or the tabernacle or whatever building was constructed, but in Jesus, that he was God with us. And then, of course, Jesus is crucified. He dies. And in that account of his death, in, in one of his biographies, uh, the Gospel of Matthew, we read this really interesting kind of portion of Scripture. Matthew says in, in chapter 27, verse 51, at that moment when Jesus died, the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to the bottom. Now, again, so in the temple, there was this place, kind of the place where the presence of God stayed was not the entire temple. It was in this small area called the Holy of Holies. And there was this really thick curtain that kept everybody out of it. Because one of the things that was really clear is that God is holy and we are not. And if we come into God's presence, we could die. And so that curtain kept out anybody except the priests. And even the priests had to wear, they had like um, on their robes, they had bells on the bottom and they had a rope tied around their foot. So if they went in and they hadn't done just the right things, they might fall over and die. But you didn't want another priest running in to kind of pull them out because maybe they hadn't prepared well. And then they, and then we just get be like piles of people and it would be really difficult. And so they had a rope tied around their ankles. So if someone, if the priest happened to die, this actually is true, they would pull them out, Right? And you'd know because you'd hear the bell stop ringing, right? So the whole time the priest is kind of putzing around in the Holy of Holies, you hear the jingle, jingle, jingle. And if it stops, like, Jimmy? Hey, right? And if nothing, you pull, all right? So, so that's kind of how the setup was. And there was this big, thick curtain that separated that portion of the temple from everything else. So when Jesus dies, When Jesus, the one who represented God to us, dies, suddenly this curtain is ripped. Not not by a person. It's just, it's ripped in two. The symbolism is striking. God has left the Holy of Holies. God is not present. God's spirit is no longer found in this building. It's not there anymore. So where has it gone? Well, after the Gospels, there's a theme that we pick up. And we see it at the end of all of the Gospels, but I'll read from 
uh, John, uh, which is the fourth biography of Jesus, the fourth gospel. And it's really brief. After Jesus is resurrected, he's meeting with his followers. John writes, Then he, Jesus, breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. The rest of the New Testament, there's this fascinating thing that we find with the early followers of Jesus. It's that the primary experience of God's presence is now not in some building somewhere, but it's God's Spirit with the people working in them and through them. It's repeated over and over in the book of Acts that the Holy Spirit comes, the Spirit of God comes to be with these people who are following in the way of Jesus. Be in them and work through them in the world. In fact, Paul in one of his letters, another one of his letters to the Corinthian church, at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, says, Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? This is earth-shaking for these people. Their understanding of where God lived since the beginning was always about a location, a building, a really great, fancy, nice place where God could set up shop and we could all recognize that God is there and we are here. But now that's all changed. Now the temple is you and me. Now God's Spirit sets up residence in us as we look follow in the way of Jesus. And yes, there's a collective reality there. There's a lot of stuff in the New Testament about how the church, the the people together who are looking to follow Jesus are the body of Christ. But there's also an individual way. There's There's a way in which it's very personal that God's Spirit sets up residence in you and in me. Yes, God's Spirit is transcendent beyond all that we can fathom. Yes, God's Spirit is present in the community of believers, but yes, God's Spirit is also present in you in a very personal way. And I, I think this is important for us to kind of remember to, or to, to learn, to pay attention to, because there's a way in which we can really begin to look at God in some very general way. Right? That, that God can become more of this kind of general sense, uh, an ideology, a way of viewing the world, but not something personal. Like, we, we think of God's characteristics. Like, God is, is love. God is just. God is merciful or forgiving. And we can begin to kind of maybe particularly for those of us who've experienced an over-individualistic emphasis on our relationship to God, we can can kind of move towards, you know, there are some shortcomings to that. I I don't know that I totally buy that. I much more gravitate towards this idea that God is love, and wherever we we find love, God is there. And wherever we find justice, God is there. And wherever we we find and experience forgiveness, God is there. And and there's some of that that's, that's really true. But there's a way in which God can 
quickly become an impersonal force, uh, kind of a set of values, rather than our creator who wants to be personally engaged with us and at work in our lives. It was interesting, I was listening to uh, the Joe Rogan experience. If uh, you've heard, It's a podcast on, uh, it, w- one of the most popular podcasts on iTunes, for those of you who do that kind of thing, um, which is like two or three of you. Um, but he was interviewing a professor, um, Jordan Peterson, who's a professor at the University of Toronto, a psychologist, theologian kind of guy. And uh, Rogan was clearly taken by Peterson. I, he he was, over and over again was talking about how brilliant Peterson was and how impressed he was with how Peterson thought about things. And, and they weren't really even talking about spiritual stuff. He was just talking about, they were talking about some actually some free speech issues that, were, that he was involved with, so it was, really wasn't religious at all. And then at one point, Peterson mentioned, well, you know I'm a very religious person. And you can tell that this just totally throws Rogan off a little bit. Like, he over and over keeps coming back to, like, well, when you say you're religious, when you say you believe in God, you mean the harmonious frequency that exists between people in general, right? Like, like you mean, like, the general concepts of love and goodwill. Like, that's what you mean, of course, right? And it's so fascinating because he keeps looking for these ways to say what you're really not saying you believe in a, in a personal God, right? I mean, you can't believe that really because, after all, you're brilliant. And, and Peterson comes back, he's like, look, I, I get it. And there are some really bad ways that we've portrayed God that are inaccurate. But he said this, and I thought it was fascinating. He said, if you lose the humanness of God, the human characteristics, the, the anthropomorphic way in which we look at God, sure, God is not a, a physical person walking around somewhere in the clouds, but if you lose the, personal, the personality of God, God becomes so abstract that he's just unrelatable. You might as well just kind of float off into the clouds. That for Peterson, it was critical. And and obviously for Paul to understand that God is personal, that God is interested in a personal connection, yeah, a personal relationship with you. That there is a way that God exists clearly outside of us as individuals. God is not confined to you, to me. But God is not so big and transcendent as to be disinterested in you. God is not the one who exists somewhere out there, but one who looks to live in us, to work in us, to shape us, to know us and be known by us. We see this in Paul's discussion about kind of what happens as a result of the Spirit living in us, that it causes us to cry out, Abba. Now, this is, a, this is a, an Aramaic word that was used both by children but also by adults to refer to a father figure. To, it, it denotes intimacy, a, a connectedness that was enjoyed between a father who was close to his child. Uh, George MacDonald, a pastor in the 18th century, describes this move into kind of intimacy with God from this kind of strict obedience, like God's distant and I have to obey him, to God is within me and I know him as father. He calls it a spiritual coming of age, this kind of 
growing up into faith where we recognize the God of all creation is taking up residence in me. That is the reality of things. Um, so my son, Josh, is 15. <clears throat> and uh, I forgot to ask his permission to share this story, so hopefully I won't regret this later. Um, <clears throat> but uh, he has, for a long time, been really taken by the fact that his grandfather is a hunter. And, you know, he loves, I mean, he's, he's, kind of, he's a boy, so shooting guns is just cool. Um, but, you know, his, his grandfather has always, his pop-up has always uh, been a hunter, and Josh has always kind of looked forward to the day when he could join him in that. And he knew that his grandfather had kind of set aside a hunting rifle that he could use. And, uh, we, you know, for a long time, he's like, hey, can, I, can I have that? Can, can I have that? We're just like, nope. Nope, that's for after you take your hunter's safety course and you go out with your pop-up and you practice a little bit. Oh, and by the way, it will never be at our house, but you can have it at the farmhouse, right? Like, so there are all these kind of... But there was a long time where he knew it was there, but he couldn't access it because he just, he just wasn't ready. But finally, the time came when he was old enough, when his pop-up took him out for his hunter safety course, and he took him up in the field and, and let him practice shooting targets. And after a while, he, he came to us and he said, yeah, I think he's ready. I think I can take him out. And so, you know, his mother and I, with much fear and trembling, stuck a weapon in our child's hand and sent him out to shoot at stuff, which, as I say it to you now, sounds remarkably foolish. Um, but we did it. And, um, and he, but he didn't go alone, right? He went with his grandfather. His grandfather went with him so that he could do this. And one of the things that made me really happy and, and made me more sure that he was ready for this, that he was at a place that he could handle this, was when he came back and told us about the fact that he didn't get a deer the first year. And we said, oh, so you didn't see anything? Oh, no, we saw one. In fact, I had a really good shot at one. Well, what happened? He said, well, it ran, it ran kind of between me and my cousin. And so I pulled up the gun, and, you know, I was... They were yelling at me to shoot, to shoot. But I, I realized I was, way, I was way too close to where my cousin was with where I was aiming. And so it just wasn't safe to take the shot. So I didn't. I was like, okay, you're ready for this. You, you're ready for this. You're able to handle it in a way that's, that's wise. He had come to a point where he could handle the enjoyment of going hunting and I know not all of us are fans of hunting. Um, but he could handle that with his grandfather because he understood the responsibility that came with it. And it's a little bit the way that we come to understand this, this coming of age, this becoming heirs. Right? This is the term that Paul uses, that we are heirs, that we've come of age, that we've realized that we're no longer... You know, we're no longer these people who understand God far away, but we're these people who embrace the fact that God is at work in us and through us in the world, that God's Spirit has taken up residence in us. We are heirs. But heirs of what? That's kind of a weird, kind of, we don't think about that. I've been watching the, the Crown. My wife and I just got through the Crown. I actually have really wanted to use the Crown clips for intros to these, but it's just like, I don't know what happens on Netflix when you go to order the DVD, and you know, when you, you order one, and for some it's like, okay, you know, I forget what the words are, but for this one, it's just like, we don't know where it is. 
right? So somewhere out there, some of, like, 12 of you have rented it, I guess. Um, but, so I couldn't get that. But we've been watching this, and it, there's all of this. It's fascinating, right? It's a different world of thinking about kings and queens and heirs and heiresses and how all of that works. It's just not a, a word that we think about a lot. But it's this idea of this amazing power and privilege, but also incredible responsibility being passed on to someone who receives it simply because they are part of the family. And and this is some of what we see in Paul, right? Like, that as followers of Christ, we are in the family of God and have become heirs of the promise. Heirs of this promise that God made to Abraham. Again, this is the promise in Genesis 12, verse 2, really briefly. He said, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. We have become heirs, recipients of that promise. That the creator of all things desires to bless us, and the blessing that he gives us is himself that we receive the presence of the Creator so that then we can be a blessing to the world. So that all the people of the earth can be blessed. It's an amazing gift and quite a significant responsibility. So... How do we begin to move forward recognizing both the gift and responsibility? And I think the first thing that we do is we recognize that part of what you do when someone actually wants a relationship with you, assuming that you want to reciprocate the relationship, is that you cultivate it, that you spend time working at the relationship. Now, If you've ever been in a relationship, any relationship, not necessarily romantic, but just had someone who you talk to on a regular basis for whatever reason, um, most of you have families, I would assume, Um, you know that relationships take work. All relationships, any, any amount of knowing anybody at any level takes work. And if we're to move to an understanding of God as a relationship that we're to cultivate rather than just a set of morals or guidelines that we're to live by, it's going to take, it's going to take some work on our part to cultivate that relationship. I like what Dallas Willard says. He's an author and pastor. He, he writes this about, specifically about hearing God, but I think generally speaking it applies for cultivating a relationship with God. Willard says, Hearing God cannot be a reliable and intelligible fact of life except when we see his speaking as one aspect of his presence with us, of his life in us. Only our communion with God provides the appropriate context for communication between us and him. Only our communion with God. And I was kind of struck by that word because it's also not a word that we use very often. Like when we use communion, we will often use it in terms of like taking the bread and the juice to remember Jesus' death and resurrection. Um, And that's not how... Willard is using it here. So what do we mean when we talk about communion? Um, So it comes, of course, from the word commune. We'll pull it up here. Not commune like you hang out and, like, in the wilderness smoking weed. Like, not that commune. Um, This is the verb uh, to commune. Share one's intimate thoughts or feelings with someone or something, especially when the exchange is on a spiritual level. I mean, it's really what we would often refer to as intimacy. It's this idea of, knowing someone 
and being known by them. Letting yourself be transparent and open and known. And we probably don't often think about kind of God, relating to God on that level. But this is the image that Paul gives us. The creator desires to have that kind of intimacy, of knowing and being known. A relationship. And for some of us, I know that the, the idea of God as, as Abba, as Father, can be a little sticky if we had um, difficult relationships with our fathers. Uh, that, can be, that can be hard. Because when we think Father, it's not like, oh yeah, that's somebody I want to spend time with. It's all this other stuff that rises to the surface. And I understand that that's complicated. And maybe even Father isn't the most helpful image for you. Um, but the way that Paul describes it, the way that Scripture lays out God as father, God as parent, is this one who, who loves us unconditionally, who is safe to be with, who is at work in growing us and changing us and making us more fully who we were created to be. It's a God who is dedicated to our good and our well-being and calls us to live out that same value in the world this is kind of the picture that we get of God the Father. So I recognize that can be challenging, particularly if we've had difficulty with our, with our fathers, our biological fathers, our fathers here. Um, but it, it's a different image of Father than we often see. So cultivating that kind of relationship, um, here's the thing. There are lots of ways to do it, and it's as unique to you as your individual relationships are. Right? Like, you don't relate to your friends the way that everyone else relates to their friends. You relate to your friends the way you do. You engage them in the ways that are more true to who you are and what connects with you. And I think the same is true as we cultivate relationship with God. That we need to, to identify and pursue practices that help us connect with our Creator. So things like, like prayer and scripture study, things like meditation, journaling, talking with friends, processing things in community. There are lots of different ways, and there's no one right way. There's not like a way that you have to do in order to have like a legitimate relationship with God. It's simply that you want it. That's it. Now, there are some things that might be helpful, and if you're someone who struggles with that and you're like, yeah, I really do want that, but but I've never been able to figure out anything that works for me. Come talk to me. I'd love to have that conversation with you. We have a couple of people here in the church even who do some spiritual directing, things like that. They're really good at stuff like that. We, we can help you think about what might help you take some steps forward in that. Um, but there is no one-size-fits-all. Like, everybody who does this right does it this way. It is a very personal thing because it is a personal relationship. But that's step one, is us choosing to say, I actually want, I want to cultivate this. I'm, I'm not interested in just kind of knowing about this transcendent being, but I actually want to be engaged and open to know and to be known. That's step one. And step two is realizing in concert with that that you and I are the method through which God chooses to bless the world. That primarily God addresses 
the needs of a broken world in and through the person of Jesus Christ. But the method through which he blesses the world are those who are following Christ. The way that he chooses to distribute the blessing, the, the love, the justice, the beauty, the peace, forgiveness, restoration, that those things happen in and through those of us who are living out the way of Jesus, who are following Christ together. But it's not just that we're like channels of that or kind of these instruments to be used towards that end. That's also part of how we develop intimacy with God. I mean, think about the people that you're closest to. Some of your deepest bonds grow as you do things that you love with people that you love, right? So if you really love someone, you love sharing things with them that you love. So for example, um, a couple of weeks ago, we were up in Ohio visiting with my family. And we're only about an hour from Cleveland. And we had a couple of days that we're like, we're not sure what we're going to do. And I was like, do you know what we need to do? We need to go into the queue in Cleveland so our kids can see all the LeBron James stuff, right? Because I am a LeBron James homer, and I've successfully uh, evangelized two of my four children into that. And so I was like, this will be awesome. So literally, we went to the queue, we looked around, we went into the gift shop, we took pictures in front of the humongous LeBron James picture, and that was about it. But it was awesome, and it was so much fun. And it's this memory that we will cherish. Why? Because it's something that I love and I care about, and my kids and my wife, we all got to experience that together. And there's something about doing something you love with someone you love. There's a, a level of intimacy that develops as you choose to do that together. And this is part of what we see as we choose to allow God to bring about his love and beauty and justice and peace and forgiveness in the world through us. We get to do what God loves with him and learn to love him as he loves us. There's a way in which that builds intimacy as we do this together. This is why it is, it's good for us. It's not just that you have to. It's not just like, well, now that, you're, now that you're someone who is following Jesus, you have to go be a good person. This is part of, this is part of the joy of relationship together. It's doing what God loves with God and learning to love God through it. It's a gift. It's a gift to us, and it's a gift to the world. This is Paul's vision for what it means to be a part of the family of God. That it's this people defined not by our, our ethnic identity, our religious identity, our nationalities, definitely not our political prefer, uh, preferences or affiliations, but by this commitment to the person of Jesus, to allowing ourselves to know and be known by God, and to living out God's love and justice and mercy and life in the world. Father, um, we're really grateful for, God, we're grateful for your presence with us. Um, for the fact that while you are transcendent and beyond all of our imaginations, doing things that we can't even fathom, that you're also present within us, bringing about transformation, drawing us to know you and to be known by you. Thank you for that. Help us to 
embrace that, to cultivate relationship with you, and to, to join you in your desire to bless the world. And Lord, um, yeah, I hate talking about the money stuff, and I think most of us do, um, but I'm really grateful for the generosity that is present here. I've been blown away time and time again by those who are here and those who, who aren't here this morning who have just been incredibly generous. Um, Lord, would you help us together to, to listen to you and to know what, what our role is as part of this community and kind of helping us continue to move forward financially. Um, give us wisdom, give us discernment, and uh, God, help us together to be open and honest and to walk through this together into the next things you have for us. We ask this in Jesus' name.